0: It was good. Um, you guys are getting better because you know I make you repeat it and I want you awake and all that, so good job. You know, I'm not going to make you repeat it today because you did such a great job. Well, today is the week after Easter and um, I don't know about you, but I was pretty tired on Monday. Uh, we get here pretty early in the morning on Easter and it's a pretty busy day for all of us with family and things and it's pretty tired on Monday, but um, it's been a great week and many of you probably don't realize that Easter really happened in two parts. Um, Easter happened once very first early in the morning, and then later at night, Jesus appears again to his disciples. And so Easter really is, there's the whole day of Easter. And, And last week, we only really covered half of it because we only had enough time to cover half of it. We looked at Easter as this new set of glasses that God gives the world, this new reality where the old creation dies and you begin to see things, when you, when you start to follow Jesus, you begin to see things the way they really are. When you follow Jesus for that first time, you begin to see there's a whole new possibility. Opportunities for forgiveness, opportunities for reconciliation, opportunities for living a transformed and brand new life. I used as an example last week, the, the grandfather, that video from Facebook, the grandfather who got he was colorblind, and, he, and he, saw, he got these glasses where he could see color the way everybody else sees for the very first time, and he put them on, and he just began to, to tear up. And that's what Easter really is. It's this brand new view of the world. And so last week, we looked at one view of that. This week, we're going to look at another. So we're going to be in the book of John. If you need a Bible, um, we'd love to offer that to you. Go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that will bring you a Bible if you need one. If you don't have a Bible of your own, this is a, a gift from us to you. Go ahead and take it. Put your name in it. It's yours. Um, the words will also be up on the screen, but we'll be in John chapter 20. We're going to be starting at verse 19. I had to look at that for a second. Verse 19. So let's get into it right now. John twenty nineteen. On the evening of that first day of the week, see, on the evening of Easter, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We're going to get to that in a minute. Let's pause right there, though, for a second. What strikes me is very interesting in this second encounter that he has. First with Mary Magdalene, the disciples are looking for him. They don't find him, but, but first to Mary Magdalene, now the disciples are in fear. They're afraid, and they're in the upper room because, you know, people, are, the word's starting to get out, and they're thinking, man, what if we're killed to to keep this silent? You know, people don't want Jesus to be alive. They they already killed him once. Now what if they come after us next? So they're afraid. They're fearful. And they're in an upper room, and the door is locked, and Jesus shows up in the midst of their fear. I mean, I think that's the point right there. Jesus will show up in the midst of your fear. But that's where Jesus shows up. The most interesting thing to me about this entire interchange, this entire conversation, is that Jesus trusts his disciples. You know, we tend to think of it the other way around. We put our trust in Jesus, right? And of course, these people had placed their trust in Jesus, but now Jesus is placing his trust in them. Not for like his eternal security or anything like we do with Jesus. I mean, that's different. But he's saying, you are my plan. The 12 of you, well, 11 of you, Judas... No, actually, ten of you, because Thomas wasn't there. So the ten of you, and Thomas too, we'll get to him later, are my plan. I trust in you. I, as, as God the Father sent me, I am now sending you. And the whole rest of the New Testament, we get words and phraseology like, you are a royal priesthood, you are a chosen people. You represent God's kingdom. You're Christ's ambassadors. I and mean, when we get all of this really great language about the church, about us, about those of us who follow Jesus. So if you've said yes to Jesus somewhere along the way in your life, if you started following Jesus, then Jesus looks at you and says, I trust you to carry this. I trust you to carry this into the world, into your relationships. I trust you to carry this into your workplace. I trust you to carry this into your families." I I trust you to be carriers of this message. I trust you. Wow. That's a huge responsibility to have, right? And and, and maybe, you know, last week we talked about this whole garden scene and how, you know, God is really redeeming the whole garden. When you think back of the first creation, the first creation was all, everything was screwed up in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned and all that. And now Jesus raised again from the dead in the garden. He's the new Adam. He's redeeming all the past. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've went somewhere along the way and said, man, some of this stuff I've done, yeah, I put my trust in God, but I'm not a trustworthy person. I've screwed up. The great reality of Easter is that he comes to you in your fear. He comes to you behind locked doors, and he says, I I still trust this. I still want you to be a part of this. I still want you to be a part of taking this message to the furthest reaches of this world. You might think, I failed God. Well, get back up on your horse. You might think, I, I, I can't get back on mission with Jesus. I, I can't get there. I, I, need to, I need to go to seminary. I need to get ordained. I need to study. I need to do this. I need to be in 14 Bible studies. I need to, to join this group and this group and this group before I could ever go tell my friends about Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. When I first started following Jesus, I that was like the most missional part of my life in, in, in many ways, because I would start telling people I started following Jesus. Just people, random people, I started following Jesus. People at my school, I started following Jesus. They're like, Dave went crazy. <laughs> I no. I, I, I found real truth, you guys. You've you, you got to be a part of this. The other day, I was uh, skateboarding. I was at the skate park, and... Um, because I enjoy breaking my own bones with some style. Although, I've never broken a bone skateboarding. Just, um, and I won't knock on wood, because that's a... You guys know knocking on wood. Never mind, this is a different story. I'll tell you. knocking on wood is uh, the old pagan German way to knock out the evil spirits out of wood. Now that I've ruined knocking on wood for all of you. Because <laughs> if we do it, we have no idea where that comes from. We just... Well... That's the belief that you're knocking out an evil spirit out of a tree. So, good for you. Anyways, I was at the skate park the other day, and, and, and this girl said, she was skating, and she was like, she goes, well, there is no, she just blurted out, there is no God. And I was like, well, how do you know? And we started having a conversation about Jesus and about what real truth is. And she goes, I only believe in the universe. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> I guess I believe in the universe too because the universe is there. I said, do you believe that the universe is guiding and leading you somehow? And she said, yeah. I was like, wow, so there's intelligence in the universe. Yeah. Who do you think that is? Is the universe a what or a who? Well, probably a who. And it got her on this track of asking questions. She wasn't ready yet to, you know, she did not want to hear, lay your life down and start following Jesus. We just started getting her on the right track. Path. But my point here is this: you are always on mission. That Jesus now is sitting with his disciples, and, and it's more of like the, the, this huddle with a football team, saying, "You all right, you guys? You, we got the ball. We, we have this time. We got to make it to the end zone." And I don't know anything about football, so I hope that's right. But it, it's like it, it's like I know a lot about baseball. So at the bottom of the ninth, your team is up. And, and the coach says, okay, you guys, we need one run. And we need you to get on base. We need you to get hit by a ball so you get on base. That was me. Big guy, <laughs> fill the strike zone. We, we, and then we need you to get a double. And because we needed this run. I mean, it, it's Jesus sitting with his team saying, all right, you guys, let's get together. And, and in fact, you're not going to fail because I'm going to give you something of myself. In the garden... Uh, with Adam and Eve, in the earliest parts, there's first God formed humanity, and it was just this lump of dirt and water, right? That's what humanity was. And then God did something incredible. He breathed into the nostrils of humankind, giving humans something of himself. Does that make us God know that we're still creation? We're still creations. So God gave us something of Himself, His own breath of life, but we forsake that in the sin and in disobeying God. And so we've always tried to do things our own way. And now God is sitting, Jesus is sitting with His disciples and, and He breathes on them almost to replay the garden scene saying, you guys messed this up before, but now let me give you something of myself so that when you're on mission, you have the Holy Spirit with you. You have something of me along." With you, I don't know about you, but the times where I'm telling people about Jesus are the times where I feel the closest to God. There have been times. I, I remember in high school, I, I had a guy. Um, it, he came up to me, and I was a student leader, and so apparently, as a student leader, you need to know all the answers. And came to me, he started asking me all these questions: How do you know it's true? How do you know this? How do you know that? And I, I started answering his questions. Now I cannot tell you a word that I said afterwards. Couldn't tell you a single sentence of what I said. But my brother was standing next to me, said that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I said, would you tell me what I said? (laughs) Because I honestly don't remember what I said. God was with me in a powerful way and I was sharing the gospel. If you want to experience... The Comforter, what Jesus calls the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Some of you are like, man, I I just don't feel like I've experienced God. Or where is God? I don't feel like God is with me. You know, go get uncomfortable because that's where the Comforter does his work. Go get uncomfortable somewhere. Go tell somebody else about Jesus because this is the context in which Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit everywhere in the New Testament. As Jesus is giving out the Holy Spirit, he says, go on mission. And I, I think we just want to go have coffee with the Holy Spirit, right? Like, oh, Holy Spirit, let's try Frappuccinos today. Unicorn. Candy. What is that? Unicorn. Yeah, I don't know. There's unicorn Frappuccinos for some reason. I, I don't have the heart to tell Starbucks that unicorns aren't real. Um, <laughs> but he gave them something of his own, essentially, and, and he, he breathed on his kids and he said, this is for the mission." This isn't for you. I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit helps us draw near to God. Yes, the Holy Spirit helps us in understanding the scriptures. Yes, the Holy Spirit helps us in times of grieving and in trouble and all that stuff. But essentially, he, Jesus is giving it in the context of mission. Mission. He's giving himself to his church to say, go on mission. The word breathed there is meant to be linked to this verse out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Now I'm going to read this for you, and then I'm going to tell you the context. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breathe the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. Ezekiel had this crazy vision, where he just saw this valley of dry bones. And God said to him, Go breathe on that valley almost to show him what the new creation would look like. That God took these old bones and he put sinew and flesh back on them and he helped them rise again. This, that whole vision is meant to be, John meant us see that vision here, what Jesus is doing with his disciples. His disciples, a.k.a. his church, a.k.a. all of us, are that valley of dry bones. Those people that that just done. But the breath of God restores and rebuilds and makes us new again. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 37. There's a lot more to it than that, of course, but that's the point we're supposed to see here where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's breathing new life into them, a new wave of the Holy Spirit saying, go. So many times, um, those of us who've been and I, I love what Joanne Lyon has said on this. Joanne Lyon, uh, if you don't know that name, she was the, the former, right before, um, uh, just, she just retired last year, she was the former general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. She stood up in many Wesleyan churches, and even ours, and she said things like this. She said, now unfortunately, Pentecostals have scared us away from Pentecost. Because we see some crazy things on TV and all that stuff. She said, but don't ever... Don't ever be afraid of the Holy Spirit. You need to get back to a sense where the Holy Spirit is, is the, not the forgotten God, where the Holy Spirit is God with you. So many times we treat the Holy Spirit as, as, as sort of like the third wheel of the Trinity, right? We're like, you know, it's, it's weird, it's, it's frightening, it's scary. I don't know if I want to be involved in that, but God wants to be with you, and this is his way of doing it, is with the Spirit. And he gives it to us over Pentecost. And, and there's some theologians over time who have said, no, you know what, all that has stopped. And, and these are known as cessationists. Well, theologically, that's just, in my opinion, not a very good translation of the Bible. So what I want to tell you today is this. is that God desires to be present with you in all of life, in everything you do, and especially on mission. And his way of doing that is sending the comforter the Holy Spirit, to be with you right here, right now. Your discipleship isn't just defined by knowing great stuff about God. That's not the way your discipleship is defined. We should all look at ourselves, by the way, as disciples of Jesus. Your discipleship really is defined, when it it gets to this point where the disciples have lived three years with them. your discipleship is defined by the indwelling of the Spirit in your lives. I'm going to say that again. Your discipleship is defined by the indwelling of the Spirit on your lives. There's this great verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It's four words. And I didn't put it up on the screen because I just thought of it this morning. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. What does that mean? When the Spirit of God stirs up in your heart to do something. Maybe to say a word to somebody. Maybe to, to, to just reach out an arm of encouragement. Don't go, oh, that was just a weird burger I ate earlier. You know, don't, Ah, oh, I don't know. That per, I, I'm not comfortable with that person. I'm not going to do that. When, when the Spirit prompts you to, to say, hey, do you know about Jesus? Have you been, ever been to church? Would you like to come with me? Quenching the Spirit is saying this. Yeah, I'm going to do that later. That's what quenching the Spirit looks like. I've done that. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, Don't quench the Spirit. When God puts stuff on your heart, don't push it out. There's a great story um, by a woman who's connected to my family, and, and she's uh, been a, uh, paralyzed for a long part of her life. Uh, she has to get around in a wheelchair, so life is very difficult for her spent uh, in her early years when she was dealing with the illness she was dealing with, spent many, 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 many years in bed. But she used those t- that time productively. She prayed all the time. She's got this relationship with God that's incredible. She, she says one day she was at church, and, and she just felt like the Spirit of God was leading her to go up to this person she didn't even know, and, and just to give him a word of encouragement. And she thought, this is out there. This is weird. I'm not doing that. And and so she stayed there. She stayed seated in her wheelchair. She didn't move or anything like that. And then a little later on in the service, a man walks up, says something to that other person, walks straight up to her in the wheelchair and says, it's okay, I did it. And walks away. She told me that story with tears in her eyes saying, I I can't explain it. But I know the Spirit was leading me and I know I disobeyed. Don't quench the spirit. Jesus told his disciples that they would do greater works than these. He's now sitting there among his disciples. He You're going to do greater works. He told them this all over the book of John, but in John 14, 12, he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So how is it possible that we will do even greater things? Because we have something of God with us. The Holy Spirit. That's how it's possible. That's the only way it's possible. And then Jesus tells us that His Spirit is for the forgiveness of sin. Now, I'm going to read this text again because it's very confusing. It's caused a lot of people to stumble. So I'm going to read it again starting in verse 23. So if you want to put up the uh, John 20, 19 through 23, uh, just that section of verse 23. Um. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this is a very confusing part of John uh, chapter 20. And I want to get into the nitty-gritty for a second. Now, first off, you should know that in the NIV version, it's not the greatest translation of the Greek text, unfortunately. And I, I'm always like, oh, man, I wish we all spoke Greek and we could just look at the original text together. Essentially, what the Greek thought is being said here is, if you forgive any one of, of their sins, they will be retained. If you do not, they will be lost. That's really what they're saying in the Greek text. So we kind of miss that in the NIV, and I'm sorry that that's the case. But um, there is a way that you could translate it exactly what it says here, but probably the better version to read would be the... Uh, the New King James or the um, New American Standard Version on this verse. But let me break down what this means for a second. What this means here is, is this. Now, in the Gospel of John, sin means not knowing God. That's what it means in the Gospel of John. All the other Gospels, they get into adultery, they get into lust, they get into money and all that stuff. But John keeps pretty consistent, knowing God and not knowing God. That's what he means by sin. So if you go into the world and forgive them their sin, then they'll be kept. In other words, if you help them to know God, they'll be part of the community. If they don't want that, then they're not going to be part of the community. And so I think he's saying this primarily because they're in a part of Jerusalem that hates them, the disciples. They're in the disciples, they've got some supporters, but they also have these people who, who are not supportive of Jesus. In fact, they tried to kill him. And they were successful, yet unsuccessful, because they did kill him, but he came back. So really, what I think the, what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples is go into this unbelieving world and, and, and help them receive forgiveness for their unbelief and bring them into faithfulness. The other words that can be used from the original Greek on the forgiving and, and non-forgiving is faith and faithlessness, faithfulness and faithlessness. So it's, it's, like I said, it's an extremely difficult text, and we have some of those very difficult texts. And I say that by, by also saying there's like 10 other ways that we could talk about this text, but we'd get way too deep into the weeds for today. What I want you to get out of this today is that Jesus is sending his disciples into an unbelieving world to help them reconcile their relationship with God. That is the point of this. That is what they're going for. He's sending them on mission. Well, let's keep going. John 20, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Did- Didymus. I don't even know if I pronounced that right, right? I say I wish all of you knew Greek, but I can't pronounce names in the Bible. I've had this problem my whole life. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put out your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hands and put them into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believed. Here's what I think is going on with Thomas. Now, if you pay attention carefully, when Jesus came to his disciples that evening and Thomas wasn't there, he showed them, they, no one asked, but he showed them his hands and his side. And I think they were probably telling Thomas about this. And Thomas did, you know, Thomas gets beat up a lot over church history and, Oh, Doubting Thomas, we call him, right? Oh, that guy's just a Doubting Thomas. Yeah, we're all Thomas, okay? Had you been there too, you would have been like, Jesus showed you that? Then he could show me that too, right? You're all trying to pull it over on me. If he showed you, he could show me. I think he just wanted to see what his friends saw. Like I said, he gets a bad rap throughout scripture, but or throughout history, but look look at let's look back at Thomas here. John 11, 16. he's 16. He's a courageous pessimist here. He says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. He's a courageous pessimist. He's like, well, let's go with Jesus and we'll die together. Because they're going to go and, and and heal Lazarus. Let us go. John 14, 5. He's an honest skeptic here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, Thomas was just a guy who wanted to be with Jesus and he would have gone till death. Thomas was the kind of guy where when Jesus said, I'm going to a place where, where you don't know about, I'm going to the Father, where he says, tell us the way, we'll go with you. he just wants to be with Jesus. I think this is a guy probably with his heart broken. His master, his Lord has died. And he didn't know what to make of all this. He's a guy, I think he wanted to be in the center of things. And and yes, he he doubted the resurrection, but I think he also just simply was doubting his friends. Because his friends are telling him about this. So I just would absolutely be Thomas. I'm telling you right now, I would be the guy standing there going, okay, so Jesus showed you, he could show me. Let's get a confirmation here. No big deal, just have him come on in here and show me his hand, show me his side, we'll we'll all be cool. I would probably be that guy, and probably 80% of you would be too. You'd be right there with me. Thomas is all of humanity in this situation. And the advantage that we have with that is that since we're all kind of Thomas in a way too, we know where the rest of humanity is at. If Thomas is all of humanity in this situation, and we've been Thomas at one point in our lives, then we have the ability to go to the rest of humanity and tell them about Jesus. There's a point that you have to get over, this doubt. Everyone wants to see the wounds. Everyone wants to touch Jesus. That would make it so much easier, right? It would make it so much easier. Jesus knew that all future generations wouldn't have that advantage. He says, I trust you to go and tell them. By your word, by your witness, they will know. By your lives that you live, they will know that I exist. There's a reason why this is faith. We put our faith in him because we can't see it and feel it. John 20, 29 says this. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me and believed blessed are those who have seen and yet ha- not seen and yet have believed so what he says is you've seen me and believe but blessed are those who have not seen yet believe anyway who's that that's all of us right isn't that all of us we are the ones who have not seen yet believed all the disciples the, the people who they they converted the ones who have not seen yet believed how do we communicate the gospel to a people who cannot see. How do we do that? I think we get clues all through the rest of Scripture. Uh, one, one of my favorites is this. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. And I'm not sure. did I, put, I did put it on the screen. I was, a, I was traveling all over Arizona last week, so I don't remember what I put on the screen or not. So I'm sorry about that. 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks And give, I'm sorry, to everyone who asks you, give the reason to hope for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. Should you shove the Bible down somebody's throat and force feed it to them? Is that a gentleness and respect sort of way? No, not even remotely. Now, there's some people that, as you're sharing the gospel with them, they're just openly ambivalent to you. And, you know, don't hit them or just walk away, you know. But with gentleness and respect, always give the reason for the hope. Do you have the reason for the hope that you have just stored up within you? If somebody walked up to you and said, what's the reason for the hope that you have? Would you be able to answer them? Now, here's the better question. Has anybody ever asked you that? No. What if we flip that around and begin asking other people, what's the reason for the hope that you have? What if when you're next to somebody on an airplane and they can't go anywhere for a couple hours, (laughs) what's the reason for the hope that you have? Just curious. What if, you know, you're you're just at lunch and maybe you're at lunch with somebody that you work with and you've been to lunch with them a trillion times and you ran out of conversation pieces. So you say, what's the reason for the hope that you have? gets into a deep conversation, right? What's the reason for the hope that you have? How do we go into a world full of Thomases? One, we have to have the Holy Spirit with us. Otherwise, we will have, we've got no physical proof, right? I mean, I could sit here for hours and lay out archaeological proof, logical proof, historical proof. Actually, there's this great new text out that talks about dating the resurrection to um, sayings from the resurrection, he has risen, that word he has risen, to just days after the resurrection is phenomenal. You know, we could go back and look at some of these texts and historical proofs and all that stuff, but the bottom line is we can't produce his body, we can't produce his hands, we can't produce any of that stuff. We have to be the sort of people that have this hope written on our hearts that tells the world. That's what we have to have. We have to have the Holy Spirit with us. The hope that you have, what is that? That's not, a, that's not a, you know, biblical proof. That's not archaeology. That's not any of that stuff. That's your story. The reason for the hope that you have is your story. I was this way, and I met Jesus, and now I'm this way. That's your story. What is the reason for the hope that you have? Let's keep going. John 20, verses uh, 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Very few gospels, actually just John, say this is the reason why I wrote. Actually, Luke might... Here's an ordered account of the life of Jesus right in the very beginning, they say that. But John is very blatant here. This is written so that you might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that was written about. This is so that you might believe. One of the things that you see over and over again in the book of John is that Jesus is for the world. Jesus loves the whole world. He came for the whole world so that the whole world might believe. God really wrecked me a while back. Um, One day, I had a a sense I was—I was actually since the drought's been over a little bit, I've been watering my lawn a little more because my daughter loves cartwheels. But that's a whole different story. Um, I was watering my lawn, trying to get her cartwheel area ready for her. She's trying to do back handsprings. It's so cute. She's almost there. Um, Watering my lawn, and I get this sense from that God's speaking just watering my lawn, and and I'm saying, all right, Lord, what are you you saying? And, And it was almost like God said, people are important to me, why aren't they important to you? This whole world is important to me, why isn't it more important to you? As I'm sitting there watering my lawn in a heavy moment, I'm like, whoa. And so this thought came to my head, and I'm not sure if it was me or if it was the Holy Spirit, but but I know I can't quench this and I have to tell you about it because then we've got to do it as a church. The question was, who are your big five? And I, I, and I went, big five is a sporting goods store, Lord. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And the question was, who are the big five people that if they came to Christ, everything would be different? Who are the five people surrounding you and in your life that, that if if they came to Christ, many people would come to Christ. Who are the big five linchpins that you know that need me, and why are you not praying for them? And as I'm getting rebuked, watering my lawn, I was like, "Lord, couldn't you just talk to me about the drought a little more? I can stop watering my lawn." I mean, it, it, people are important to God. Why aren't they important to you? Is the question that came. Just one person is important to God. Why isn't that one person important to you? This is written so that the whole world might believe what are we doing about it as a church? Everyone matters to God. So I since Jesus asked that big question of my life, and that was probably a month ago, and I've been praying about it and thinking about it and going, Okay, Lord, what do I do about that? I, I don't know what to do about that. And then it was like, just tell everybody. Oh, that that's a little easier. So I wrote got this little journal, and I, I wrote five people's names down. And actually, I'm on four. I don't, I'm taking this real seriously because I feel like God told me I don't know who the fifth person is yet that I'm going to start praying for. But I've been praying for four people for a little bit now. And um, I want to invite you as a church to do this, to, to take five people and to pray for them daily. You don't have to let them know. It, it could be between you and God. But, but I think that God's eventually going to put you on a war path with them that's going to help them. It's going to help them to know God. I think you're going to be key in their lives. Maybe it's just that you're praying for them, and all of a sudden you're going to hear that they've accepted Christ at some point in their lives and everything changed, and you could then show them, you're, on my, big, you're my big five. You're number two. So we have our ushers here today, and they've got cards, and I've asked them to pass these cards out to you And we're actually going to take a moment right now. If you don't have five names off the top of your head, fine. If you just want to put one as they come to you, great. We're going to do this for the next couple weeks, and we're going to remind you. I actually have reminders set on our, our service planning calendar for a few months out. We're going to remind you about this all the time. Who are your big five? Are you praying for opportunities to invite them to church are you praying for opportunities for them to know jesus are you praying for opportunities that you might share the hope that you have who are your big five so i'm gonna ask our ushers to just go ahead and pass these out to everybody and you know once you get that set that's between you and god i want to ask you to put that on your on your in your car or in your bible something that you're going to see every single day and just say these are my big five These are the big five people in life that if they came to Christ, everything would change. Now, you might have more than five, and you want to pray for more than five? You're an extra credit type person? Awesome? Do it. And you might not have five on the top of your head. It might take a little while. That's fine, too. But I just can't get away from that question that God asked me. God, I care about these people. Why don't you? And I was like, I do care about them. Not enough to pray for them every day. Not enough to ask that that I would intervene in their lives. Not enough to ask for them to come to know me. Not enough to go tell them about me. I love these people, why don't you? Oh, that's a hard question. Who are your big five? Let's pray. Father, as you sent your son to breathe new life into us. God, I pray that even right now as a church, you breathe new life into each one of us. Father, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit into us. So many times we are guilty, and and some of us might just need to say it to you, we are guilty of quenching the Spirit. God, when you've spoken up, we've gone, eh, I don't know. God, help us to stop kind of behavior. God, help us to live more into what your Spirit is saying, guiding, and leading for us to do. Lord, I pray that you would lay on our hearts right now, these people, whether it's five or whether it's a hundred, would you lay on our hearts these people that need to know you? And God, would, would we write them down and would we begin to pray with, pray about them each and every day? God, would you help us to Trade our judgment for love. God, would you help us to be the sort of people that want to see you and the world reconciled? God, would you send us on mission with your Holy Spirit today? Lord, we love you. We honor you. We thank you for sending your son. And now, God, let us go on mission with him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.